I am haunted by stories of individuals endangered and imprisoned. From the hundreds of young Nigerian girls kidnapped over the years by Boko Haram to the children and adults this past week trapped in their Texas classrooms by a crazed gunman, 21 of them who did not survive, and dozens of others in adjoining classrooms fearing for their lives. And I think about the hundreds around the world and in our own country unjustly imprisoned, some of them on death row. I think of the great freedom fighters of history, like Nelson Mandela with his 27 years in prison, and hostages, and POWs, and martyrs down through time. And whenever I think about these individuals and what they experienced, I wonder how did they survive? Did they band together? Did they share food? Did they manage to hold onto their humanity in the midst of inhumane conditions? And where is God in all of this? I like to think that on any given day, I'm a pretty good person, but if I were captured and tortured, I don't know if I could behave with courage and dignity in those, in those conditions. I haven't been tested in that way. So how do people survive when the most terrifying things happen? In the time after his death, Jesus' disciples have a chance to find this out for themselves, the answer to this question, because they are called to travel all around the ancient world spreading the news of Jesus, and that means they are not safe. They face challenges and attacks and frequently are thrown in prison not an easy life. Being a first-century follower of Jesus, but we sense how God's Holy Spirit stays close to them, filling them with the strength and purpose that they need, not only to survive, but to continue to share the story of what Jesus means to them, what it feels like to be in this relationship with God, and Today's passage that you heard William read from Acts of the Apostles is such a great example. Paul and his friend Silas, they're in Macedonia, which is modern-day Turkey. And they land in deep trouble for curing a servant girl possessed by a fortune-telling demon. Paul orders the demon out of the girl, and out it comes in this story. And instantly, this girl loses her ability to see the future, and this makes her owners furious because they were making lots of money based on that skill. And so, furious, they take Paul and Silas before the local magistrate, accusing them of disturbing our city with 
unlawful Jewish customs, and the authorities, egged on by the angry Roman crowd, order the soldiers to strip the two men, beat them with rods, right there in the town square, giving them, we hear, a severe flogging. And then the soldiers tell the jailer to put them in the innermost cell and shackle them, their hands and feet in the stocks. So, publicly stripped, beaten, thrown in prison, shackled, these are terrifying, terrifying conditions. Yet, we hear that about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. I'm imagining how the Holy Spirit fills them with comfort and faith and uses them in this quiet time of the night to touch the hearts of the other prisoners who are listening. And I love this image of all these hardened prisoners leaning in to hear that comfort and cheer. And then, because this story is not exciting enough already, there's an earthquake so violent that the foundations of the prison are shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. This is a very precise earthquake. And the authorities, we can imagine now, would only think that they are in charge because we feel the rumble of another kind of power. What a story. So we've got exorcism, we've got torture in the town square, we've got a beautiful midnight prison song, and now an earthquake, an amazing earthquake, as if God is saying, I am in this moment here with you. But wait, there's more. The best part, I think, the story of the jailer in all of this. He, he was sleeping through the, the midnight singing, but when the earthquake happens, he wakes up and assumes that all his prisoners have escaped because he sees all the doors standing open. And so he immediately pulls his sword, ready to kill himself, knowing it's only a matter of time before the Roman officials have him killed for failing them. But Paul and his friends didn't run away. Instead, we hear Paul shout in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are here. Paul and Silas and all the other prisoners are standing right there. Instead of running away, they saved the jailer's life. And yes, the chains came off the prisoners. But in this moment, the chains also come off the jailer who rushes to Paul and Silas and falls at their, their feet and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He sees them freed, and he wants freedom too. Paul and Silas answer, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. So what happens next? They go to his household, but first... Paul and Silas, even in prison, especially in prison, are in such a powerful position to do God's work, to touch the hearts of people with their story, 
of what God means to them. And, and so then we move to the jailer's house where, and this is a beautiful image, the jailer tenderly cleans their wounds. And then Paul and Silas pour water on him and his whole household, baptizing them just like they did at Lydia's a few days before. And then the jailer, their new brother, sets food before them and the whole household joins in a feast. Healing, baptizing, sharing food in this story, a little church is born. Paul and Silas's suffering offers them a pathway to reach others and draw them to God. So, does God cause Paul to cure the demon-possessed slave girl or make it so that he receives a public flogging or make him be thrown into prison? No, I do not believe that God causes those events to happen. Suffering, we know, is a part of life, not inflicted by God. And I will never believe that God moves us around like helpless chess pieces for our own good. But sometimes in this world, awful things happen that we have no control over. And other times, awful things happen that we have contributed to through our own actions or inaction. And through it all, we do a lot of choosing. We have that freedom. Every minute of every day, moment by moment, we are choosing poorly or well to ignore God or follow God, and then God works with what we choose. God has a dream for us, but doesn't force it. So Paul actually chooses to cure that slave girl, and that's what sets this whole story in motion. And it isn't even a very noble reason. He just chooses her because she's getting on his nerves. And I love that detail, that some of our greatest experiences in life don't start out particularly nobly. So she's following him around day after day, getting on his nerves, and so this choice sets in motion a, a, for him a dangerous chain of events in this hostile Roman colony. Again, God does not choose for us, but God has dreams for us. God calls us, and we can ignore or listen. And listening to God inspires Paul and Silas to make the journey to Macedonia in the first place. And, and whether we listen well or listen poorly to God's call in any given moment or day or night, God is right there with us all the same, picking up the pieces, experiencing <clears throat> our joys with us, our sorrows with us, our suffering, our hope, our relief with us. So close to us, the breath inside our breath, and ready to fill our moments of deepest suffering, those ones we can scarcely imagine and we don't know how we would manage filling those moments with the power of love. So back to my question. Imprisoned, captive, tortured, suffering, how would we do 
Would we cower or would we, like Paul and Silas, find a way to sit together late at night and sing? Again and again, God offers us the chance to choose God and then fills us with the power of love, that love strong enough to set us free and others free too.